If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, we'll be listening to a discussion between famed singer-songwriter Judy Collins and Abigail Pogerman, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Judy Collins is a six-time Grammy Award nominee and winner of one for her cover of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now in 1969. Back then, she evoked the idealism and determination of a generation united against social and environmental injustices. Five decades later, new generations take inspiration from her 55-album body of work and discipline to thrive in the music industry for half a century. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on May 24th, 2012. Thank you very much. I, I said to Judy when she was being introduced, I whispered, it must be so weird to be described as a legend. And she said, I don't have enough money to be a legend. I'm working on that. But she'll take donations when, you sign, when she signs books. I'd love to, first of all, first thank you. I've stalked you for a year and a half. It was a privilege to have you here. Thank you. Um, Welcome. Yes. Um, let's start with the title of the book. Yes. Um, which some, I hope everybody here is familiar with it, but they may not be. So if you sort of tell the story of the title and you chose music. Well, you know, in 1968, I was making an album called Women Through the Time Goes in California. And my producer had decided that I should have a new band. Always good to have a new band. And so we chose a couple of people that I was longing to meet. James Burton and um, from, from Nashville, wonderful Nashville player, and Chris Eckert, who used to play with the, the uh, Flying Burrito Brothers. And we had quite a good time. Chris never knew what he was, but he was a lot of fun. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we were in the same boat most of the time. But it was a great band, and in that band was the great Stevie Stills, whom I have admired from afar because he was in the Buffalo Springfield, but they had broken up just, oh, literally weeks before. And it was a difficult time. My father had died in, in May of 84, and of course that year, as you know, Martin Luther King died in April, and uh, Robert F. Kennedy died in um, June, I think it was June the 1st, maybe, or something. And then we started our recording on the 7th. And, and so Stevie and I, the only answer to those kinds of problems is to make music and art and, and try to do something positive. And so Stevie showed up on that, on that date. And I just, oh, please, he was amazing. He was an amazing guitar player, amaz amazing person. And so we started this love affair. And during that love affair, we started to write songs. One night, when we were finished recording Women Through the Time Goes for the last time, we went 
I moved to New York, but I was teaching in New York, and he said to my engineer, why don't you roll the tape, and I will play all these songs, but you will be calling the dogs, which he did, and that tape disappeared for 40 years. And um, Arnold lives in City Hall, is the song that he had written for me, and of course a number of other songs that he'd written as well. I didn't know about it since he was alive until 1969, and he came to a hotel room where I was staying, and I was working at the in uh, Santa Monica, and sang it for him. And he said, "Was it supposed to get me back?" <laughs> it didn't work, but it didn't work. No, no, no. But everybody, of course, everybody. How could you hear it and not think somehow that it had something to do with your own romance? You know, I mean, it, it's that kind of a song. Very powerful song. One of the great love songs. And, of course, I chose the title because it's so pretty. Also, I wanted to call my book. I wrote the book as Sweet Dreams Realize. Well, they call it My Life of Music, but I sold it to Brown, Brown Nelson, as Sex Dreams Realize, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and the Music that Changed the Generation. I like that title better. Don't you like that title better? There's plenty of all of that in the book. Oh, yes. I mean, I said to the publishers, why does this not take, in about the third go-round, the third year of editing, I think it was two years of editing, I said to my editor, every time I get an edit back, it has my title crossed out and your title put in, and I don't click on the change because I don't want to change it. I want to call it what I want to call it. And they, he said to me, well, John Brooks, a wonderful editor, he said to me, well, our sales people in the course who will be selling your book don't see it that way. And uh, I said, well, why don't they read the book? <laughs> then perhaps they will. <laughs> when you first heard that song on the radio, you talked about that moment in the book. That was, you were sort of hearing it very differently in the taxi. Can you talk about that? Oh, it's just glorious. You know, I just heard it and I thought, oh, my God. Because then all these thoughts go through your mind. Oh, what have I done? <laughs> and you, you thought, um, how could I have left a person who could write this song? <laughs> and then I thought, and good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> so let's back up to the beginning and to Colorado, where you grew up. Uh, I don't think a lot of people realize you were a classical pianist and you went forward with the symphony in Denver. So how did that trajectory, how did you end up with folk music when you started here with a very rigorous training? I was, my family background was fabulous. It was complicated, but fabulous and very eclectic. My father worked in, worked in the radio business for 30 years. He had a wonderful radio show. He was a great singer. He read voraciously. He would get on the radio and quote Emerson and Crow and Mae West stories and and sing Rogers and Cars and beautifully, beautifully. And I would wake up and I'd hear him getting ready for his radio show, you know, rehearsing, you know, drive me home and get your hat, lean your worries on the doorstep. Or he'd be singing Irish songs like, I'll take you home again, Kathy. And so we, we just knew there was so much music in the house all the time. He was interviewing people on the radio. They would come to the house and have dinner. And uh, it was a surrounding, and he wanted me to have a great training. He wanted me to, he would say, have a proper musical training. So I, I studied the piano from an early age. And when we moved to Denver in 1949, 
he found me a great teacher. So I was either playing for my for my school kids or singing on the radio or playing the piano in the school in the uh, in the in the piano teacher's shows. And then he found he found Dr. Bebo, who was another stereo brother, because she was a pioneer. She was the first woman to conduct major symphonies, literally in the world. And she was ferocious and determined that I should be a great pianist. And I studied with her and played with her up until I was 13, doing Mozart. So she had all of this time and effort and hope, of course, invested in me. And when I was 14 or so, I decided that uh, I was listening to the radio one day and I heard the, the, uh, the Gypsy Rose. So the Gypsy Rose is in the from the score of a, an Alan Ladd movie called The Black Knight. And I just clicked. I just, I said, that's, I have to sing that song. And it really, really has changed my life. Then I heard another one. I heard uh, Barbara Allen sung by Jake. Then I had to sing it on my own. Whoever this DJ was that was playing this music was doing something for me that was quite quite important. And I got my dad to get me into music. And I was on my way, and before you knew it, I was uh, joining the Denver Folk Club, the Folk Cover Night, we called it, and and getting to know all the folk singers in Denver, including the guy who led the who led the team whose name was Linda Ripley, who was a, among other things, he had a house up in Lookout Mountain, and he came to me to come and drink whiskey with my father and and he would sing Willie Guthrie songs, and my father would sing Rockets and Hearts. And they would drink my father's whiskey and pound the table and, and yell at each other about politics, it, all on the same side, of course. And um, he also had, among other things, he had something called the Dormant Brain Cell Research Foundation, which I found even the most interesting of all of them. And, and so that's what happened, and I was suddenly... I was saying, you know, I am, you're looking at the American Idol of 1957 because I won a contest and was sent in 1957 to Atlantic City to sing with my guitar. Before me, the Army Mac marching band was playing and after me, a naval alphabet choir was singing. <laughs> and I was singing, Down in Sunburn Valley, in a lonesome, they didn't know what they were looking at, but they, they were very nice, I think. And he was saying a book that people say you will discover uh, folks I've known, like Fred Eagles and singing and pounding the pavement, so to speak, for a while before that. I mean, what, was, what were they doing yeah. like eight or eleven years? Well, they're sort of like you two. <laughs> <laughs> Very similar, um, except they were laughing at my jokes, which is great. Um, in nineteen. Brother husband said to me, <laughs> My current husband, my only husband, is sitting over here. He's saying, I've heard this before, but what's he going to say? Is it new here? Uh, you know, I let him read, read this book uh, just at the last edit when we got a chance to have input before they mailed it to us and said, No more changes. And he read it. And, uh, you know, he's always been incredibly supportive and wonderful. And when it was finished, 
you put it down, and you came in to me, and you said, hmm, well, I guess I won. <laughs> and then one of my friends said, no, you won <laughs> to me. So in 1959, my ex-husband said to me, I had a job. After all the music, all through my young growing up with the training and playing and singing with the orchestra and I mean, playing the orchestra and singing all over and with the school shows and PTA and the Lions Club and the Bowery Air Force Base in Wichita when I moved to Denver. I um, had a job at the University of Colorado filing papers. And my husband was in school and so was PhD and Master Oak and I had to be done with the first day undergraduate work. And he said to me, why don't you get a job doing something in Mexico City called singing? And so I called my dad and I said, who do you know in Boulder? And he said, well, I know this guy who has a friend who runs that club called Magic Club. So I went to Magic Club in March of 
ね、今日の天気とか天気など、昼朝からどういうご存知のものがあるのに、あると。And then there was a drinking on the weekend, and we had a little bit of wine. That's all they want. <laughs> and so the, the, the Brahma community in which the drama gathered is very complex, and the arguments are more than three people. Well, we got some children as well. But in general, we mostly got through it. And I think, I think the thing that we had was a little screening place. It was very much, and we were, we adored him. He was, he was an amazing man on every level. And even in his drinking, he was amazing because he never missed a beat. He never missed a day. He never called in sick. He never didn't show. He was constantly performing at such a high, high level. And I figured that the reason that he got so good was that he couldn't see. And I figured when I turned 19, realized I was an alcoholic, I thought, well, I'll never be as bad as he is because I'm not drinking. You know, the logic of this、uh, illness is、uh, peculiar. How about your mom? How did she feel around that time? And when you look back on what she did, and you, you know, because you're kind of a shadowy figure trying to keep everybody. Mom, what drugs did she have? Oh, yeah, she was、oh, yeah, a wonderful lady. That I will say. My mother was definitely, you know, she had taken, taken her job when she was in college to Mandarin and sold her girlfriend and her family on to marry this blind man who was making his living in the music business. And of course, everybody thought she was nuts. My mother was very, very present in all ways. But my father. Over the years, as I became a teenager and, and more,、um, let's say, professional, for lack of a better word, developed in my musical studies or forming my career, became somewhat, I think,、um, interested in keeping my mother and I apart on some emotional level. So my mother called me when I was about 19 and said, You know, your dad, and I tell you, I was only started in 12 months with. With two other women, I won't say who they were, but they were all very famous women. And there were four of us talking about mothers. It was maybe 25 years ago. And out of them, I told her three things. My mother called me and said, Your father is doing his best to put distance between us, and I'd really like you to go and talk about it. And so we went out to lunch, and we got red wine blindfolded, and we told each other everything. And from then on, I saw her death in、um, December of 2010. We were departed, focused on the death of death and talking about everything. And until that time when she died, we talked at least sometimes once a week, twice a week, frequently. And always because I was the oldest, I guess, but also because she spoke the truth so to all of us. But she always, we were always checking each other for weekends. And then the death of the, of the、uh, recipient and the nephews and nieces and everything that was going on. My mother was fabulous and wonderful and interesting. And again, a leader. So you were married with a child four or five years ago. Yeah, and I brought my nephew along when he was about six and a half, seven and a half. And then he began getting the art students. And there's a French Canadian Going back and forth and going to Missoula here、uh, about LHC and then having that. And、uh, um, it, it, was, it was always just a, a big profound impact. And of course, in the beginning, I was in Colorado, so things were a lot easier. And then, of course, the travel took longer and longer and longer. 
76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit Zabar's.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week.
don't just want to leave and go, actually, there's one more thing I want to say. It's more than one thing, but I am finding that having a person in my life is a system. It's a song that somebody wrote in Japan and he translated, I guess, and I, I'm okay with it. 
but I prefer this. Formerly, uh, Joni Mitchell, the Strigler of uh, Elusive, Touchy, and Sometimes Distant. But she wrote Third Guy Beauty. So we'll talk a little bit about her and what that song did for Justin Bieber here for you. Well, it did a lot for both of us, I think, and, and that that should be a bond that we celebrate. And I certainly do because I got a call in the middle of the night, 1967. I had already met and recorded the songs with many, many famous people and discovered people like Leonard Cohen and uh, Randy Newman even, and of course people like Queen who was just starting to write, but but I got a call from my friend uh, Al Cooper who started the Blues Project and Blood, Sweat and Tears, and he and I had been friends for many years, and he called me up about three in the morning, and, he, and I, knew, I knew the name of Joni Mitchell. I knew she'd written a song called The Circle Band, which was Tom Paxton, I mean Tom Rush had recorded, and Tom was a great, a great builder up of, of Joni. But I, so I knew, I knew the name, but I hadn't ever heard the song. And so uh, I got this call at three in the morning, and and, and uh, Al got on the phone and he said I, I followed this girl home from the club where she she's keeping up with the drummer or the guitar player or something, and I followed her home because she said she wrote songs and I she's good looking so I figured there's nothing I could do so I followed her home. <laughs> and then she started singing, and I thought of you. And so we're calling you, and he put her on the phone, and she sang, and we both wrote Tina on the phone at 3 in the morning. And I said, I'll be right over. <laughs> so I heard the song. The next day, I took Jack Holson over to hear the song. And uh, there's an apocryphal story in, in the, uh, uh, where was I got it? Which, I don't know where it came from. It's not true. Some kind of somebody typed in of what happened with Tina Turner, but it's not true. And uh, so I recorded the song, and of course it became, fortunately, because it happened to be my seventh album, The Leopard. So I was kind of poised. You know, I'd been making records for seven years. I was on the cusp of the, the climb to the top, I think, because Electra was ready. They were ready. They had had very good success with In My Life, and they were ready for the next album. And it just so happened that it had Blake Lysnell on it. And because the song was so great, but it took a long time to make that song into a hit. It kept remixing and remixing, and finally my producer <coughs> in California remixed it, and the radio really picked it up. But it didn't happen overnight, just like I didn't happen overnight. I've been working on it for a long time. But, but the song changed both of our lives. Why do you think it did? So well, what was I mean? If you were going to look at the alchemy that made it a hit, it had to be more than the music of course. Mm -hmm. Oh sure, oh sure. It was. It's a great song. There's no question about it. But radio was always tricky about about mixing, even on that band, and you had to be mm, doing something on it in order to be what it was. And uh, and it just might have been that it took the time. It's a, it's it's not a you know, it's not a mean gene spring quick down and dirty quick botch and take in the bath sort of thing. It's a thoughtful song. But it had I think it had the harpsichord on it which Charles Grissom did and this came from an album called called uh, Wildfire Love Wildfire. And Wildfire was totally orchestral. That also might have taken some of the immediacy out of it because I think it took time for people to get the whole 
see it works. I didn't know how much trouble I could get into with the book with the police. What do you mean? Like you weren't sure anymore? I wasn't sure. I wasn't leaving the car. I wasn't checking the phone. It took him to the step. Either he wanted me to be successful, and I said he was, but and his knowledge may have at that time been went on in his mind. He certainly had been in various parts of the world where they said sometimes you where they had music that was not based on all the events of that day. So when you start to write your songs, that's when the whole beginning of your songs about your own songs. Was that a big leap for you, or was it more as I was saying? But it didn't come from me. It came from Mimi Brown. Because after I started writing his songs, he was probably amazed that it's not that I don't think it, but it does need to come released in a more modern channel. Because he was writing my songs. And he had come to me in 1966 and said, you know, I can't play the guitar and I'm writing my own songs. And then he sent me a CD and I thought, <laughs> And so I said, well, And I would record it for John and Paul. And so I just wrote my own songs. And he said, he said, you know, what I don't understand, why you're not writing your own songs. He didn't have any clue about it. I'd never, you know, I was surrounded by these great songs, but I never knew it. So I sat down and I wrote this first song called Dry. Dry I could not get the words to gather my songs together. I know that was dry for you. Thank you, Lynn. So in terms of your, that's all a big difference. I guess I think a lot of the songs that you've written have had their, their favorites. But something like Standing in Fire or uh, Amazing Grace, those aren't necessarily folk songs you've been writing. Um, can you talk a little bit about each of those in terms of how they came to be so, so much wisdom as they uh, run further out there? I mean, you said that 200 people had recorded Standing in Fire. Yes. Yes, uh, actually, my record company, A&R Producer, my record company, my producer is actually Matt Brown, somebody else was running it at that time. It, I got a call from my friend Lisa Bacall, who was a very good friend of Lenny's. Uh, she and I became friends. And she said, I've seen this show called uh, Little Nightmares, and there's a song in it that you must sing, and it's on the cast album. So she sent me the cast album, and I... I put the needle on the on the record and played the song and just burst into tears. And I looked at the album cover and it said that the producer of this album was a fellow named Hal Prince. Now I didn't know anything about Hal Prince and I didn't know anything about I didn't know who that was. So I, I called him up and you know, the thing about fame, now I had already recorded both by Matt. About having a, a top ten hit was that he called me back, <laughs> and uh, I said, "I see that you have this wonderful song on your on your shelf, and it's on your uh, cast album." And he said, "Yes, I know." And I said, "Well, it's a wonderful song." He said, "Yes, I know." <laughs> he said, "200 people have already recorded it," and I said, "I don't." So I recorded it. Now, I, why it happened with my version, I have lots of reasons like that. 
I had been prescribed things in, in, in my early 20s. I was taking various things that doctors had given. I mean, you know, I used to call up the GP and tell him I was sterile being poisoned. I mean, I had fantasies that were very deep, and I had this dark, dark depression. And I found, in my early 20s, I found that the secret for me was exercise in a couple of aspects. First of all, it helped the drinking, it helped the depression, it helped the eating, it helped everything. I knew, I know now, and I knew then, that I had to exercise regularly and seriously. And probably, since I started in my early 20s, that has really kept a level of things for me that were important, and that's still important. I found early in my 20s that I had to write about what was going on. I started writing journals and writing down poems, and I was always reading journals and reading groups and reading people's journals and reading the Maui Samoans journals and everybody else's journals and, and uh, the letters of uh, Flannery O'Connor that people would talk about what was going on in their lives. And, and I, I, that became a serious exercise for me to write. Almost my reading schedule was otherwise it was like uh, exhaustion from the heat of study. The drinking was, and the eating disorder started really directly as soon as I quit smoking in 1970. That was, you know, what they need to do. And so you were eating the time for a long time. Yes, I was. I was uh, actively eating for a long time, <laughs> and I was sober for a long time. You know, I just sort of, you know, that just nobody knew anything about that. Nobody was talking about it, and. Of course, it is it fundamentally involved with allergies. Just as alcoholics were, we're allergic to certain things. I'm allergic to alcohol. I'm also allergic to certain foods that turn into alcohol in my body. So I have to see certain things and cope with certain um, aspects of my life in, in ways that let me avoid those things. But but I got lucky and I found help and other. But I'm always looking. I'm always looking. I never ever ever stopped looking. I mean, that's, that's really basically the secret. I mean, I always knew that medication helped me. When I was really in trouble, emotionally, I'd find my way to a yoga class in the 60s and 70s, and I was always looking for a spiritual path. Uh, brings me back to Dr. Grieco, which is interesting. When I made, I made a movie about Grieco because she was so fascinating, and I knew her story. I'd read about it. I'd read all of her press clippings, and she was always telling me about her life. And I made a movie about her that was nominated for an Academy Award in 1974. And when I made the movie, uh, we went to Colorado to film. I knew I wanted to tell the story of my experience with her as a student playing the Mozart piano concerto playing in the lessons and then playing with the orchestra and then the finale and all the all of the things that happened with her. <coughs> and so when we were filming that, I saw a little picture on her table of a guru. I mean, I could tell he was a guru. You know. He had a beard and he was white. He looked like a guru. He didn't look like Beethoven and Bach and the rest of the people that were in his studio. And I was kind of shocked. It was like seeing somebody naked, you know, that you'd always thought was always dressed. I, I thought, who is that? And then a few years later, I approached her about it after we'd come back from Hollywood when the movie was nominated for an Academy Award. And, and I said, what was that? And then she said, well, what do you know about, about Yogananda and about Kriya Yoga? And I said, zero. 
she said, well, go read this book. So she led me to read the autobiography of Yogi. And I read it in 1980, 79, 80. And I found the meditation form that I've always done ever since. But I've all, I'd always been looking for it because I always knew, I'd been reading since my whole life about meditation in the previous years, that meditation is the single thing that we have to do. We have to find a way to connect with something bigger than we are. I want to talk about your son, Clark, because it's a large part of the book. I know you've written about him before. Um, when you look back on what he was wrestling with, do you feel like it is in, entirely tied to some of the same struggles that you had? First of all, he was he was an alcoholic, he was an addict, and it took him a long time. He was um, struggling for quite a long time. And then he got sober in 1984, and he went to treatment, and then he got sober and had a family and got married and had a wonderful, wonderful life. I mean, he was a wonderful person anyway. He was kind, he was generous. He was the kind of guy you want to get to know. He had more friends than you could imagine. He was a wonderful man. And he was an alcoholic. And he was in recovery. And then seven years in, he relapsed. And of course, relapse means that your default position, whatever that is, if you're not getting the kind of help you need. And in his, his case, it was again another attempt at suicide. He had attempted suicide when he was using. And his grandfather on his father's side had taken his life probably in about 1948, uh, 1947-48 before I actually met the family in Denver, although I knew about the suicide. But it's not that suicide runs in the family. I think it's genetically that, that chemical issues and alcoholism and depression run in families. I think that is definitely part of the chemical imbalance that comes up in people's lives. He was um, really the shock to my, I mean, I destroyed my life, I was quite sure. And the only thing that I knew to do, uh, the only thing that I learned from my own past experience was if I don't talk about this, if I don't write about it, I had already written a number, I'd written a couple of books already, but I'd also realized that you have to face these things head on or else they're going to destroy you and take you under. And so I did write a good deal about it. And as you said, it's changed. Things are getting, there are a lot of uh, community-based organizations around the country, many of which I speak to over the years, the years since his death. And at that point when he died, there was practically nothing to talk about a solution or talk about any alternatives or any possibilities that these, all these things can be linked. I still feel strongly that, that, that rehabs for alcoholism and drug addiction don't go nearly in as much depth as they ought to with the issue of suicide. Because I, th I think suicide ideology combined with, with uh, addiction is, is more than common. And in my case, it was definitely common. I was pretty much suicidal all the time I was drinking. Although I didn't take any overt action to take, but I was still was nervous about that. And, and so I've learned so much. I've met so many people. I've talked to so many people who've been through very difficult things, but who are able to find, and my insistence was that I would find a way to have a happy, joyous, and free life, no matter what. 
no matter that I have had a skeletal osteomyocarditis, which is what happens with Athita. I met tremendously vital, wonderful people like Ed Schneidman, who started the suicide recovery uh, movement here in this country. And I, I, I do think that there are solutions. You know, it's still very much prevalent in, among teenagers. And we have seen a lot of, a lot of uh, lowering of, of death rates in, in various areas. And the number of suicides hasn't really dropped. I think it relative to the population, it, it's less, but it hasn't dropped, in fact, as a number. Car crashes have dropped. Deaths from cancer have dropped. Other things have dropped. But that seems to be steady. What do you say to people who have dealt with this, who are in the kind of treadmill of reclaiming the past, and could I have done this, and could I have done that, and if I had only said this, if I had only, you know, well, you can't live there. You can't do this. If there, the, first of all, there are no guilts in suicide. You didn't cause it. You couldn't, couldn't have controlled it, probably. And if it didn't happen under your watch, it probably would happen some other time. You know, you aren't responsible, ultimately, for another person's life, especially if you are a family member. Family members have a hard time reaching out to people with, with uh, mental illness and, and alcoholism and depression. But there is help around, and I just think that talking and being open and keeping keeping the door open for therapy. Ed Schneidman said that he could not think in all the years that he's been doing this that there was anyone who would not benefit from therapy, from talk therapy, with these deep problems. Now we have an issue because uh, insurance companies don't want to pay for talk therapy. And insurance companies have it by the throat because they want us to take a pill to quickly fix it, and they want to not give us the therapy that really is what I think helps. So then you have to find other resources, and you have to find groups that are not run by insurance companies to address some of these issues. I think that's a growing, a growing um, resource in our, in our countrywide and worldwide approach to mental health, and it should be. It's a remarkable book, and I hope you'll all buy it. I want to thank you again. Thank you so much. Beautiful. That was the great Judy Collins talking to Abigail Pogerman. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes. Welcome.